Conflict avoidance doesn't mean there isn't conflict. <laughs> There's a lot of conflict. It's just not being communicated. If I tell you you're a jackass, that's hard to hear. But if I tell you there's a part of you that's like a jackass, that. yeah. You know, okay, so now we, oh, just a part of me. If there's energy, there is uh, something to work through. I believe that I can only take my clients as far as I've gone myself. There's no door for you to knock on and say, please give me the direction for my life that you're going to have to find within. And is this helpful for you in your own spiritual development or not? Welcome to the In Search of More podcast. I am your host, Ellie Nash. Join me weekly on my quest for more, more from myself and more from this world. We'll see you on the other side. All right. Welcome, Mendel. Thank you. I'm sitting here with Mendel Turin, a licensed therapist in private practice, and more importantly, um, the nephew of Schneer Hickson, one of my favorite people on the planet. Oh, so. okay. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you, Ellie, for having me. Yeah. I think he uh, shared that uh, same seat as you not long ago. Okay. Very awesome. nice. I, th- I saw that. So welcome, welcome, welcome. I understand you're a COVID transplant. Yeah, me. yeah. <laughs> I, I spent a lot of time down here in Florida, so, and I have a lot of family, uh, as you know, some of them. So yeah. coming down here was a natural step. Uh, I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio. Beautiful. So in the middle of <laughs> the Midwest, and uh, we were ready to grow. So you practiced there? So I was... In uh, my training was there, and then I worked for St. Joseph Orphanage, which was a, a mental health uh, institute uh, specializing in trauma therapy uh, over there. Okay. So working with Appalachia, uh, doing some in-home family therapy, and then just, yeah, traditional. Appalachia is? Uh, maybe the nickname is Hillbillies. Uh, oh, so gotcha. like okay. rural Ohio, Got uh, going out there. And doing some work over there with those populations. Got you. And yeah. down here you work with? And now in my practice, primarily uh, Jewish clients, not specifically Orthodox, uh, adults and teens, um, and uh, do some family therapy as well. Explain uh, family therapy. I'm interested in what okay. that what that means and what that looks like. Okay, yeah. I mean, I, I think a lot of people know individual work and mm-hmm. couples work. Uh I was thrown into family therapy in my training and just developed an interest in families, probably from my own healing yeah, <laughs> in the uh, Jewish community, my own family, and just dug deep into structural family therapy, Mnuchin, and uh, attachment-based family therapy and some others as well. So what would that look like practically? Is it Would it be yeah. a teenager and a parent? Would it be... Yeah, so it's it's more than two people. So it would be a teen, uh, parents, it could be adult child with their adult parents. And is there a primary patient or the family is the patient? So the family is the patient. Um, and sometimes I'll work with an individual for a while and then they'll be like, you know what, I'm open. Let's do this family thing that you talk about. Gotcha. And, and it's an experiential space. So I set the the rules and the structure of what's helpful, what's not. It's, it's a little bit more structured uh, than an individual session. Okay, so let's imagine two parents with a teenage son. Okay. What would that look like walking into your, your office when you say experiential? <laughs> I say welcome to the space. <laughs> I, and I'll, I'll start with the introductions that, is it okay if I pause you at any time? 
Uh, it's not personal. But if I feel that something is unhelpful, um, I may ask you to pause. Um, I will often turn to mom or dad with a message. If I feel something, I'll say, Dad, I think, uh, you know, if you're ever feeling overwhelmed, um, you're welcome to step out of the office, but I encourage you to hold the space. Uh, so kind of preempting that often a parent will want to walk out because there's a lot of emotional energy. So helping them to feel safe, building trust. With... It's the parents who may want to walk out in your example. Oh, yeah. Almost always the parent wants to walk out. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the joke was in my office that someone's going to come storming out. And that's when the greatest change happens. That that moment where you're like, oh, I think we've lost the family. And <laughs> and that's where the, the change happens. So it's very fast work. It, it, it moves things along very fast compared to like individual. So or, you're talking a couple of sessions? Or... Yeah. Even one like long session could have a pretty dramatic uh, impact, but yeah, a couple of sessions can really uh, work with some of the dynamics in the family. Gotcha. And is this it's a form of therapy that is traditionally trained? Did you develop it? Yeah. No. Uh, no. I mean, we all have our own <laughs> style. I think that I'm inspired by Mnuchin uh, and studied psychosomatic families. Um, we're getting more. really clinical yeah, good, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, psychosomatic families he has a book on it and he goes in and I might say that the psychosomatic family is the uh, the Jewish family <laughs> um, not all Jewish families but a lot of them and what is a psychosomatic family <laughs> I'm glad we're talking about yeah, this me too. this is great this would never come up <laughs> somewhere so um, I'm glad uh, a psychosomatic family is uh, uh, from the outside uh, very sociable and regular seemingly regular family but psychologists might say that they're the hardest family to actually change um so simply put it's there's an avoidance of conflict so an avoidance of direct communication uh that can be communicating like direct emotion um, and it could also be more subtle that we don't communicate our message directly so the the child communicates through the parents or someone else will stop the conflict. Everyone's playing a game and we're all in it. Uh, so everybody in the room, including the therapist, if we're joining, becomes part of this dynamic. Um, so the psychosomatic family, there's a few criteria. I don't know if I'm going to have it off the top of yeah. my head, but uh, yeah, conflict avoidance is a big one. Uh, it, it, it's, the, it's just the less... Harsh version of the anorexic family. Uh, so, if you study family therapy, you'll study that a lot of anorexia is sourced in family dynamics, um, and how it's related is is really interesting. And um, I wonder if I'd be able to explain. I'm sorry, I think so. There's the avoidance of conflict. Um, what other characteristics would I see in a psychosomatic family? Um, you mentioned the communication. Like the yeah. indirect communication? Yeah, yeah. yeah I feel like it, I've seen a lot of that. You've seen a lot of that? And <laughs> yeah. I always say that if somebody could feel their... Not own, in my family, other families that I've, you know, seen. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I, I always say that if I can help somebody feel their feelings and, and communicate them directly, I don't have a job. At least in this generation. Right. It's not going to Next generation, it's not going to Feel be. their feelings, communicate them directly. Yeah. If yeah. I can help somebody feel their feelings. And that, <coughs> that means connect to their truth. And that right. um, is, you know, a deep work. 
And then, in turn, they'll communicate their needs, set their boundaries, whatever it is that they need. Then, yeah, I don't, I don't need a job. <laughs> At least in this generation, I say. Um, next generation won't, won't care about that. <laughs> so what do you mean when you say a psychosomatic family is a Jewish family or Jewish family is a psychosomatic family? What do you mean by that? Um, I would say that it's like a generational trauma thing um, that, that we see these types of patterns uh, where we can't hold space for uh, difficult um, emotions. So we'll always be transferring the energy. Um, we get overwhelmed with the emotion. So each, each one is transferring it. So we might see that the, uh, the child takes on more adult roles, um, for example. Um, a, lot of, a lot of what the, the work for me is so intuitive at this point, it's like all the reading that I've read. Um, but I'm trying to think if I could give it a little bit more clarity for the, right. for the listener. Um, I would say that... There is no listener. There's only one listener right here. These conversations never get published. Don't worry about that. There you go. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I only say that to say that the, the value is in this conversation itself. I'm not asking a question that I think... Sometimes I'll point to the listener and I'll say, hey, if someone is listening, like, let's clarify for them because yeah. I'm recognizing that I may understand something or not in this case, but we yeah. may have some background that someone else may not have. So let's give a little bit of yeah. color. But for the most part, the conversations are me having a conversation with you, me being curious about something. So I'm asking yeah. a question based on my own, um, my own curiosity. So when you, when you gave an example of a child um, playing the adult mm -hmm. um, role, so what's, what's happening there from a family from a, fa from a family dynamic? Like individually, I've seen that, and I, yeah, you know, can relate to that. What's yeah. what is the family doing that's creating that? The family. Uh, well, then we get into a broader topic of emotional maturity, um, and the idea that often the from generational trauma, our grandparents had a lot that they went through, and so emotionally, they may have been. Uh, if I'm going to be more blunt, like stunted uh, mm -hmm. to a certain extent. And so they're like young children and the next generation's a little more mature and they could hold a little more space. Uh, and the the child is from an, another level of consciousness, right? He's, he has more maturity. Um, so trying to grapple with it. So when the parent can't hold the emotional space and they you know, for because it's not not to blame the parent, but it, it gets let out, then the child naturally wants to soothe the parent or naturally wants to help um, and often takes on roles that are not developmentally appropriate or if we really get into family therapy, they play the in-between in the couple's relationship. Um, so often children will will, you know, mediate the conflict. Conflict avoidance doesn't mean there isn't conflict. <laughs> There's a lot of conflict. Yeah. It's just not being communicated. So another one is anger is not okay. Anger is dangerous. You see, as we're speaking, some right. of them will come up. Uh, so anger is not a healthy emotion. Um, anger was only used to like when it was dangerous. Like I'm going to, you know, I'm angry. Um, but to like normally it wasn't a safe emotion in the family. So, right, meaning anger would end the entire interaction usually. It was used... Exactly. Right, not to move it forward in it some It was way. rage, not healthy anger. Right. 
Okay, so the overwhelm of the parents would create this feeling in the child that says, hey, I, I want to take this off of them in some way, so let me step into the mature role, and I'm going to be the adult in the interaction. Sure, it's it's an unconscious process, right. like most things. It, it didn't choose it. <laughs> it just, right, we just felt whatever. The family needs to have equilibrium. Um, it needs to have balance. Everything in life has to have balance. Uh, so we, in our internal parts, internal family, right? Internal family systems is the type of mm-hmm. therapy that I work with. And external families, they all need to, they're working towards homeostasis, towards balance. Uh, so. so, and how does that play out with multiple um children and multiple siblings you and i are both from fairly large families sure sure uh it's more complicated if i have a bigger family so they're each taking on one aspect of the family needs or the parents if there's a conflict about to happen let's say in sessions we might increase anger right or we might increase conflict a little bit to bring it out Um, and then a, a random sibling might be do something like to disturb the the therapy, you know, the therapeutic process. Maybe it could be a joke. Yeah, a joke. And I'll be like, oh, that's, that's interesting that you're, <laughs> that you're choosing to do that. Uh, and that's, that's kind of the approach. I'll be like, oh, isn't it curious, mom, that you're speaking for, for your daughter? <laughs> yeah. So I, it, wouldn't it be more helpful if your daughter told me directly what she was feeling? Yeah. So <laughs> starting to have people speak for themselves and then having people communicate directly how they feel. It sounds simple. It's like, no, Dad, turn to your son and say, I love you. <laughs> and then, boom, emotion. Always a lot of emotion. Always a lot of tears with family work. So, And it's beautiful work. Amazing. And do you need the whole family there, or could it be... In order for you to do what you need to do, let's say there's a, a family of five children and you have two in the room with the two parents, that's enough for you to do I, what you I work do. with what I got. Right. They're still in the room. Your family's with you. <laughs> <laughs> They're just not there. So it's, I have to play the guessing game. It's a lot nicer when mom is also there um, or when everybody's there. Usually one family member pulls out to save the family. Um, I'll say I'll say as an expression that if I get the whole family together, very rarely can I get the whole family together again. Somebody pulls out, gets busy, checks out. It's it's a lot you can imagine. Imagine having your own yeah. family. So it, it's very transformative work. I don't think nobody, most people don't come in for family work. It's usually like an afterthought. So. But for you, it's is it um, is it your the favorite part of your work? Probably. I don't, I don't know if I tell people that. I, you know, EMDR therapist, trauma therapist, IFS, people come to me for individual work. That's what I'm known for. And the family work is like, yeah, a little personal pet project. Um, Got you. Yeah. Okay. So I touched on, uh, I touched on the right one. Do you know why that is? I mean, I can imagine, but what is it that, uh, that makes your soul sing <laughs> like this? Uh, you know, the, the joke with therapists that we're all, we're all just healing ourselves. Um, <laughs> and sometimes like we really have to check ourselves. Um, we have to have our own supervision. We have to have our own people that we're talking to. Um, but, you know, if we grew up around families that had so much pain and, you know, I, m- my family, <laughs> you know, is probably more of the psychosomatic. Um, 
But I, I grew up even in extended families seeing more intense versions of that. And uh, yeah, probably part of me wants to heal that. And <laughs> so I'm still working through that. I always say that the, the things that you have too much energy, <laughs> if there's energy, there is uh, something to work through. If <laughs> what do you mean by that? If there's if you're being pulled to something, uh-huh. it's good. It we're we're transforming it, I'm sure, uh, right. but it's also an opportunity to heal something deeper. Right. Yeah. Right. I hear that. But how does that jive with say being passionate about about something? Like, don't we want to uh, maintain passion in certain areas? Yeah. Uh, passion without too much of a controlled agenda. <laughs> Passion with love, passion with openness, passion with, if we're in an open state, of course we want to help people. Of course we want to contribute and connect. Um, But if if it feels like it's to a point where we're shoving something down somebody's throat or we're, we have too much of an agenda, that's where, and I'm just speaking freely here, and then I'm curious about it. Um, we, in IFS, we speak about the, the environmentalist who wants to save the planet, but it, he takes on, it ha- there's, there's a trauma history there that, and there's still some burdens or some, some stuff that need to be released and, and equal, the parts are still going to be there. We're still going to have passion. Uh, we're just, you know, healing them. So it comes from a place of wholeness. And we'll get the equi- equilibrium internally instead of trying to create it externally. Beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How did you get into the uh, family work? Family work, therapeutic work, maybe. Yeah, maybe we can yeah. take a question for <laughs> yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. Family work was just random, but uh, therapeutic work is more interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I think that growing up, I was a highly sensitive kid um, in a time <laughs> when. It wasn't praised. I don't even know if it's praised <laughs> now. It will be. Um, but I was highly sensitive and attuned. And with that comes just feeling everything. Um, and being, uh, yeah, just everything that comes along with that and the anxiety that, that came along with that and just feeling everything so deeply. Right. Um, I, I don't know if I can point to any profound trauma or experience that I could say. I could talk about attachment, you know, parent-child generational trauma stuff. That's traumatic enough. But for me, um, yeah, I had, I had that and just struggled with anxiety. Um, and it wasn't until I was like 18, 19 years old where I believe I asked my parents, like, I think I should work on this. <laughs> like, I don't think, is complacency, is this a good thing? We should just stay, uh, just stay anxious and miserable like <laughs> i feel like that's that was something that, that i grew up with like yeah you're that's just what you are you're just an <laughs> you're just anxious right. and and you're just a downer <laughs> you're just uh and like labeling me or the the person and i went to therapy and it helped tremendously and then i went on with my life not thinking i want to be a therapist completed yeshiva system i don't think we can go there but <laughs> completed that and yeah, uh, started, <laughs> try to abbreviate, but right. went to law school, left law school, mm-hmm. uh, found my passion. Um, it was a calling, and 
and that right. was that. So. Yeah, I can see the uh, the excitement and the passion. It, yeah, uh, it comes off you. It's nice. Okay, <laughs> I like to say I like to meet non burnt out therapists. <laughs> <It's> good. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, so you, that's the second time you made a comment that um, got my attention. That number one was therapists having supervision, and then this non burnt out um, therapist idea. So speak to what I mean, you do as a therapist in order to keep yourself sane. Yeah. Clean, yeah, yeah. I'm, we are humans, and and therefore we must have. Well, let's start with supervision. Is the idea that we have somebody that we talk through our cases with, our biases, uh, the the things that we feel charged by. Is as, that the same as having a therapist? So we have both. What? <laughs> we oh, have both. 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 If I believe that I can only take my clients as far as I've gone myself. To a certain extent. Right. Uh, so, yeah, having therapy for your own stuff and then supervision for your clinical stuff. Therapy for your therapist, you know, your right. cases. Um, yeah. So, and most therapists are doing that or is that, is that standard practice? Yeah, I mean, that, it, let me ask you a different. Is it required? No. 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 But that's the way you keep yourself. Um, passionate. Passionate. Okay. Like that. Uh, yeah. is, okay. So, you'll have... A self-appointed supervisor that you'll talk through your cases. Multiple sometimes. But I have to pay for that. And um, well, it's required to a certain extent until you're fully licensed. Then, then it's recommended. Gotcha. Um, but I don't know. <laughs> um, right. I'm, we're, not talk, we're not here to talk about other therapists necessarily. It's more about yourself. Like, is it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, but I definitely, if I'm speaking to the listen to the therapists i i highly encourage those going in their therapeutic journey to do their own work and to i mean to anybody right that there's an opportunity for growth and opportunity for doing your own work and that'll help you be a better therapist and you gotta have you gotta have people challenging you have to you have to do inquiry you have to be <laughs> have to be that sounds almost like i have an agenda um, but it's uh maybe i do <laughs> what you do. Yeah. Maybe it's okay too sometimes. Yeah, I think so. You you mentioned generational trauma. How would you um describe that to describe generational trauma to someone who doesn't have any therapeutic background, any never been to therapy, zero understanding what is generational trauma? I'll do my best. Um so speaking on generational trauma, maybe specifically Jewish generational trauma, mm -hmm. uh, we're born into a world with a history before us. We're not the only existence that ever existed. Um, we are born to parents and grandparents and extended history till the beginning of time. Um, since, uh, you know, Adam and Chava, I guess you could say, but really even in more recent history, uh, there was wars, there was a Holocaust, there were things that happened to people. And with that, certain we had, we had to uh, form certain survival responses in order to function, in order to cope and, and to manage. And sometimes black and white thinking and certain not being able to be that open, full self um, for how that gets passed down is often in 
literally emotional energy and also the patterns that that we do so how we speak to people um when we're feeling threatened we create uh parts to protect us so we'll create a a shame part like you're bad do this be like this you, you know you're gonna die if you don't listen right it's the war it's very intense and those sort of uh ideas are passed down to a world where for the most part there is a lot of safety more safety uh, to a certain extent um and we still internalize those inherited messages um the critic is not the inner critic you have may not even be your own it's your your parents or your great grandfathers (laughs) yeah right i see it when i speak to my grandparents i say you know i don't want to know who who your parents are i want to know who your grandparents are that's a good uh first date question (laughs) (laughs) you say you you made a a distinction between patterns and emotional energy so i think i know what you mean by patterns right because Mm. that's very easy to pass on to kids this is the way we think this is the way we speak this is the way we behave and then very quickly the next generation is as well what did you mean by emotional energy good question unprocessed energy is passed down unhealed unconnected to energy is passed down along with unconscious symbols and metaphors for life that's a whole another that's that's young carl jung and i highly recommend people who are in their explorative journey with god and spirituality check him out um yeah so energy is unprocessed energy if i don't heal myself i'll just pass it on to my kids i know that i know that for myself my kids are gonna be like oh i took on my <laughs> my dad's stuff so. so so give me what is practically what does that mean what's something that if i don't heal my kids may internalize shame uh, if my anger <laughs> um Let's take anger. My okay. anger, that's funny. Okay. Huh? <laughs> I always, I observe when I say my anger, like it's a Freudian slip. I didn't <laughs> say it by accident. So I'm like, oh, maybe there's anger to explore. Okay. Oh, you said internalized shame, my anger. Okay, yeah. right. You didn't yeah. say my internalized shame. You said yeah. internalized shame and my anger. Yeah. Okay, so anger is a close friend of mine okay. as well. Um, maybe not as well. Speak of things. So. <laughs> sure. A Jungian slip. No. Sure, you could use that. So a let's say with anger. Okay, so let's say I have this, but it doesn't necessarily get expressed that often or at all around mm-hmm. my children. Right? So I would say that's actually a good example. I don't know that my children have necessarily seen me express anger. And if they did very, very, very seldom and not directed um at them. Actually I can think of one time, but I think I could be forgiven because I was woken up. <laughs> I was literally woken up abruptly. In any case, I don't think there was a, a pattern. There's been a pattern of it. But I would still acknowledge that there is something unresolved around anger and not necessarily in the way that it's expressed, maybe in the way that I'm uncomfortable expressing it. So mm-hmm. maybe more of, of that. So how would, how would that get, like, what, if, what are you cautioning me, and by extension anyone listening, about me not doing the work of having a healthier relationship with anger. Ooh. Um, I just, anger is a, tr- a trigger topic mm. for people. 
mm-hmm. we're getting closer to like unconscious material. Mm-hmm. Anything unconscious like spooks people out. Um, so we speak about in Perkyavis that anger is is bad. Anger is of a desire. Um, I believe it's in Perkyavis. And I I think that we have to relearn anger and heal anger uh, as the healthy emotion that it is. Uh, sometimes it's built up and we need to express it. Maybe we need to find an outlet for that. Um, but once uh, connected to what that anger is sourced in and, and we've done some trauma work, some process work, then how do we form a healthier relationship uh, with that anger? Um, and that might be uh, anger. healthy anger is assertiveness. Assertiveness says, you know, I need what I need. I want what I want. I know what I want. Um, and if I get angry, it's only it's when I need to set my boundary. Of course, anger has a space. It's there to to keep people safe, to protect people, and even in the healthy way to communicate my needs. Um, so I can communicate my emotional needs, and if I can do that, then I probably have a healthier relationship with anger. Um, we can't. The goal is just to heal as much as we can. Right, and if that's to... not there, your argument is that that will get passed down in some way to all the children, some of the children. Yeah. Yeah, to both. Um, no, sometimes certain children take on certain characteristics of us. Right. Um, now I'm going into my own thoughts. I don't know if sure, I can sure. prove that, but I, I see it um, often, and it speaks about it as well. Yeah, I mean, we can stay with yeah. you. Not everything you're saying is as a yeah. therapist necessarily. Exactly. Right. It's you're an individual too. With we're allowed to have thoughts. We don't. Uh, there you go. We don't cancel people here. <laughs> yes. <laughs> not not in this podcast. What? Not in this one. Okay. Maybe the whole thing will get canceled one day. Halavai. <laughs> and then I'll be proud to have been on it. <laughs> All right. How do you translate halavai in English? I don't know. It's a, if only. If only. Right, but you need like a good Yiddish uh, <laughs> if only. Yeah. Uh-huh. So let's talk about anger more. Let's talk about anger. Uh, Going with anger. What? Let me get a free therapy session here. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so, so when you talk about it as assertiveness, is that anger? Yeah. Why do you say that? It doesn't come out as anger. It can be... I'll differentiate between what we know as anger, which is really rage, which is like that core biological drive of rage, of lust, right? These are like... the And then what the healthy outcome of it. So at the deep sense of anger built up is rage, and un, unrefined anger is rage, and that's probably what the Pirkeavis means. Rage is of a desire. Um, but anger, meaning an enlightened state of consciousness, of course we're, we have feelings, right? It's not, oh, I don't have any emotions. That's not enlightened. Um, but that we have anger is that we, we know what we feel, we're, we express it right away. Um, and it, sometimes we do get angry, and sometimes we do have rage. We're not supposed to be perfect humans. Um, but maybe I would differentiate between right. anger and rage. Anger and rage. So, you, yeah. so oftentimes when someone is thinking about anger, 
when they're hearing the word anger, what they're really thinking about in your mind is rage. And that's what they want to keep off the table. Yeah. And as a byproduct of that, they end up... Sometimes they also, yeah, just putting the whole anger thing. And and if it's not their anger, if it's inherited anger, do you blame them? It's, if the anger is my dad's anger or my, you know, my grandparents' anger, it's a lot to process. It's not just my own. Right. I've seen this in families where anger is a very, very unwelcome emotion. Yeah. Right. So you connect this to the same idea you shared about earlier where um, there isn't room for those, you know, someone's not in an open state, there isn't room for those emotions. So anger kind of gets, anger has a bad rap. Yeah, very much. It's it's dangerous. Conflict is dangerous. Difference of opinions are dangerous. It's the whole, it really comes, ties back into the whole idea of psychological flexibility. What is the... Um, survival mechanism behind taking anger and relegating it to the basement uh well imagine i'm just gonna go on a limb mm -hmm. if i mean if if somebody's out of control then it's dangerous they need to be like in the tribe in the community community is safety right that we need to be part of it blend in can't speak for ourselves if someone's too strong and they're not listening to the leaders or whatever it is then that's dangerous um back in the day uh so shut down shut down right, so at a very young age anytime angry gets expressed yeah it's their shame perhaps tied to it right that. there was a, a parent coach therapist i don't know what uh who i interviewed a little while ago and i asked her about a barometer that she may use to distinguish a healthy family from an unhealthy one. And her answer actually surprised me, but I want to know what you thought of it. She okay. said that a family will, she'll see a lot of expression, right? So there's several young kids and one may be crying, one may be yelling, one may be, I don't know, I don't know if throwing a tantrum necessarily was something she said, but just in general that there is expression and that it's welcomed. Like that to her is a, uh, a healthy family. This you, I agree. You would agree with, yeah. So you walk in here, my kids are throwing things and yelling, and it's like, wow, what a, what an amazing uh, family. This. Like anything, <clears throat> right? Too is much. Is there boundaries? Is that right. is it to the other extreme? But the idea that a child has a safe place to express how they feel, including their anger, um, is a healthy and needed quality for the next generation. So, so as a therapist, what you're saying is walking into a family where, into a home where, you know, you can just imagine it, right? If I was writing a movie script about uh, this family movie period, we have to look good. The guests are coming over. Yes. Right. Yeah. That image of everyone tucked in neatly, quiet, behaving for you is like, okay, this is a train wreck waiting to happen. Future patients. It's definitely future patients. <laughs> it's definitely future clients. Um, it's not a train wreck. I've seen train. You know, they're still tucked in. They're they're respectable, and that those are good qualities, and they're important qualities. Um, so we we just have to dig a little deeper. Uh, you, right. you can't know on the surface, um, right? My my point was a little bit different. Yeah. Is that the, what, the, the neuroticism. The image, right. The image that we're using this to portray an image yes, of. That's neuroticism. That's like, yeah. Right. <laughs> and it's actually portraying to the trained eye, 
is portraying the exact opposite of what meaning there's more yes, questions yeah. and answers there yes right like i pain. feel like yeah i mean with training and with knowledge and, and you have your knowledge you start to see the world differently um but with love like a deeper love or a deeper we you know feel pain and i i see suffering but also see the love or see the so you get both uh, can we talk about ifs a little bit because right. i feel like so i i was very heavily very clinical in, today yeah yeah <laughs> i was very heavily involved in um therapy from 20 2008 till 2000 let's say 13 after that while i continued to have a therapist my main direction was 12-step programs okay and I was like, that was, it was, I was in the 12 steps and then I had things to support my work in the 12, um, in the 12 steps. And I never, I never went back to therapy as the primary tool I was using to heal, but some, something or someone was always in the, um, okay. equation. My wife and I was with a marriage therapist not, not long ago. It's still part of the tools, but it's not what it was for me between 2008 and 2013 as the primary way I was um, doing healing work. Mm -hmm. And I, I feel like this IFS thing kind of came out of nowhere. It wasn't, was it, did I miss it? Was it happening when I was deeply in therapy? Is it a new, new thing? And then the way people talk about it is with, um, someone was leaving, left me a message earlier. It says, well, Surely you know that uh, IFS doesn't look at it that way. I'm like, okay, this is like the new terror. Like what? That's an yeah. So oh. <laughs> I want to know what so I'm doing. You got to be cautious about new terrors, right? <laughs> new doctrines. Um, I have to jump on that yeah, before yeah. we get into it because the psychology field is similar to the religious field that will take on, and then the religious, the creators of the philosophies become like religious leaders, <laughs> and it's and there's like a little bit of a doctrine there. Um, and I'm putting it out there that I'm, you know, I'm still working with IFS and how I feel and exploring how I feel about the culture of IFS. Um, and we're talking about it. Okay. Um, but the parts language, the, uh, what IFS offers a easier to understand, uh, walk into the unconscious into what's deeper. That's the, the value. Right. Yeah. Meaning it's a framework of, um, for potentially one aspect of it, which seems to be very useful, and I think why many people um, seem to embrace it, is that if I tell you you're a jackass, that's hard to hear. But if I tell you there's a part of you that's like a jackass, that. yeah. you know, okay, so now we're, oh, just a part of me, right? I mean, is that, is that some of this? Everyone should use parts language. I, I do believe that it's a compassionate, more honest way of looking at humans. Humans are made up of parts. Uh, on the extreme, I, I've worked with multi-personality. That means they don't recognize each other. And that's on the more extreme sense. Um, but on a, the average Multi-personality, meaning the two parts of this person don't even know that they're parts. They don't, they don't, yeah, they're, they're two separate entities where the human lives their life in multiple personalities. Dissociative identity disorder is the proper clinical 
So in one identity, they're dissociated from the other identity. Exactly. They don't, they don't recognize or remember being in the other identities. That's oh, wow. the, and everything in psychology, there's the extreme and then there's somewhere in the middle and, right. and we all have multiple personalities. <laughs> We're all a little crazy, right? <laughs> um, and that's okay. Yeah. yeah. Part of me is angry. Part of me loves doing this. A part of me hates this person. <laughs> the part of me loves them. And, and just even exploring that is like, and holding space as the parts as separate from us. Right. I'm not that part. Right. I'm not angry. The part of me is angry. So right. So that I love. Yeah. When, when you mentioned the culture, yeah. um, there's something that I, I seem to be hearing kind of repeatedly within it is this idea that like when we have a part, it's always like, it's always there. That part never goes away. Mm-hmm. So this, this you subscribe to is this part of the... the so there are a lot, like every therapy has a uh, belief system, you know, a religious system behind it, um, a hypothesis, really. Um, and he says that the parts transform, that they never go away, but they become healed parts. Um, so those functions of our personality that maybe were angry, now we use them to assert and to push forward to you know, help people, uh, the parts of us that were, uh, that we don't really know, they transform into inner child playful parts. Um, we see it. Um, so I don't have any reason to, to knock it. Right. It just felt very, um, didn't feel something about it. Yeah. I'm trying to place it. Maybe it kind of felt Similar to the 12 steps where once an addict, always an addict, which I understand. It's got a religious uh, feel to it. Yeah, like an absolute. As someone coming from a religious community. It was like that with me with hypnosis when I (laughs) I did some training in hypnosis. (laughs) And whenever like the big guy would come, some of them, I just, I had this feeling in my gut. And I get feelings about when people aren't, there's mixed intentions. And I actually called him out. But that's a whole nother story. But I felt that there was something off. And it's like that religious, that control part of me that's hyper attuned um, to something that doesn't feel fully clean. Doesn't mean it's not helpful. Is it helpful or is it not? It seems helpful. Is it all, you know, Kaddish and holy? (laughs) Is anything? (laughs) Right. Okay. So you hold it with a certain. Thank you for what it's worth. Right. If it's helpful. Same with anything. Right. Is it helpful? Is, is belief in God, is it mm-hmm. helping you? Mm, this is more helpful than not. All right. <laughs> okay, so let's, uh, so let's go there. Let's, let's go to... Go, let's go there. Yeah. <laughs> let's go to that one. In terms of... Um, is it helpful? So I understand it certainly with IFS, but to go there with, with religion, meaning is there... To, to say there's a religious doctrine, right? Like there is behind everything, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And everyone, everyone speaks in this way. It doesn't matter the discipline that, that one gets behind. And I, 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 there's room for that, meaning that when I meet someone who's standing behind a certain practice, like the, the way that's going to move forward is for someone to believe this is the thing. Oh, you're saying like in order to be, to do uh, EMDR well, I have to, this is it. Otherwise, they wouldn't necessarily have the passion. And for them, it is it. Mm-hmm. 
right? Mm-hmm. For, otherwise, EMDR wouldn't exist. If someone didn't say, yeah. I'm going to buck all, there was a lot of criticism against yeah. EMDR. There was a lot of, hey, this yeah. is, you yeah. know, total, total, I don't know, crackery, and it doesn't work in, uh, there's, there's no place for this within a therapeutic s- setting. And then for a traditional trained therapist who's gone for years to get a license to study EMDR, use it. There was an uphill battle at the beginning for, for that, but someone to say, no, this is what's going to save the world. And heal trauma, and yeah, it helped me. I mean, I, I used EMDR a lot, and, you know, mm-hmm. early on, and I'm I'm grateful for it. I didn't finish all my work when you know with EMDR. Certainly, there was plenty of trauma that the other tools had to uh, that helped you, yeah. right? Had to get to, but it did help. But I understand. I mean, I understand the role of the creator, the founder, the person behind yeah. that. Meaning, I believe that the Jews should feel they're the chosen people, and I believe that those who are not should also feel they are the chosen people. Gotcha specialness Mm -hmm. chosenness i guess like we have to be fully in and whatever we're doing and also have like a little bit of like a healthy (laughs) uh i don't know skeptic but uh like throughout all my experience i don't know if it's a good or bad thing but uh like i've always been like okay but like let me just (laughs) well i'm always questioning right this is helping it's helping until i find something that's more helpful um always seeking to to go to the next thing. I think it's a necessary trait um, for someone who likes to learn. Because if you are the type of person who likes to learn, but every new piece of information can become a religion, it's very dangerous. So I think it goes kind of hand in hand. Yeah. Where, yeah, I'll knock on new doors. I'm comfortable, but don't expect me to become your biggest fan just because I walked in the door. Yeah. But I'm willing to hear you out. And I find that oftentimes people who are very rigidly opposed to new ideas, they're most likely to get swept up in this fully. Like it kind of yeah. goes hand in hand. So, Yeah, yeah. Um, um, the, someone who jumps from one, I mean, I don't want to like label, but let's say like we're religious, then you know, very not, and then we go back to fully. We usually want to find some, some balance um, with whatever it is that we're working right. through, whether it's anything psychologically, religiously. Right. No, it's not to say that um, over time we can't be, because I put myself in that category as well, that I can't be fully convinced of something, that I can't be moved in that direction, that I'm pretty bought into something. But it's not going to be just because I got some benefit here. So here I I am. Meaning I, I didn't need to be crazily convinced to walk into the 12 steps. But at the same point in time, I loved reading books, uh, books on addiction from anti-12-steppers. Like, and I agreed with a lot of their criticism often, but mm-hmm. I still went to the 12 steps. It wasn't this. Our religious part loves it. <laughs> <laughs> the religious, our trauma, maybe it's traumatized, maybe it's not. Our religious part, if we're using parts, loves the whatever. Yeah, I found it. We found it. Praise the Lord. <laughs> okay, so what? Okay, so let's, <laughs> so let's talk about this religious part. That's where I was going. So thank and you. And that's for... there's there's I we might explore that that's something passed down generationally. That there's that we are seeking truth. We're seeking the truth, um, and it's complicated because uh, consciously we're growing, right? So that truth, uh, that whole like religious uh, part that we inherited is. It has to change. It has to evolve. Um, so there has to be some sort of like more nuance into what that even means. Um, do we have to let go of like our religious 
uhness I don't know but I do know that part of us loves it and then another part realizes that like well let's slow down <laughs> let's not jump psychology's not the next religion someone asked young are you did you create a new religion it's like no I didn't create a religion <laughs> I'm just trying to I'm just trying to help people um, so maybe that's his religion his Which, religion helping people <laughs> he, he he speaks about religion yeah. a lot and speaks yeah. about how uh, you know, Chassidus even, he quote, he says that everything he wrote was from the Maggid of Mizrich. Who's that? Young. Oh, really? I, was, I just like saw it, I read it like, two weeks ago. Is that right? Very neat. So Chassidus has metaphors for psychology and it's all the, all the traditions. It's all, he believes it's all speaking to the unconscious, everything, all religious traditions. It's all symbolic of going deeper, of the God within, of the unconscious within, and exploring ourselves deeper, and that the light of Chassidus and all the metaphors in Chassidus is speaking about psychological, um, the psyche. So, saying that the that the worlds, let's say Atzilus, Bria, Yitzhiyasiyas, like internal psyche. Yeah, right? I mean, it's even That's easier to understand with Chabad or Chagas. Yeah. Cognitive behavioral therapy right, sure. is like Chabad, it's cognitive, and Chagas is more EMDR. Uh, <laughs> somatic. Um, yeah, somatic is more Chagas, and Lubavitch seems to be drawn to Chagas, or to both. So <laughs> I'm saying you can find it. I'm not particularly looking or not, but I mean, if it, if, it, if it's helpful for you, if it helps you. Right, so when you said earlier, you said earlier that if... God is helpful for you. If believing in God is helpful for you, good. If not, not. So what does that mean, helpful? My personal yeah. uh, belief is that things that you, that you ascribe your life to should be helping you and should be helping you grow and helping you to dig deeper within and, be, uh, and seek some sort of truth, uh, help you, Face the afterworld, face death with peace, give you less anxiety. So if God is that for you, um, great. And spirituality, great. It, and in fact, spirituality is, I believe, is part of psychology. But religion depends on, the, depends on a lot of factors. So what that means, what does religion mean to you? So in your worldview, if someone is... I mean, if you said a few examples, yeah. but let's yeah. let's take one. It's sure. making me feel com more comfortable preparing for the afterlife, or the mm -hmm. idea of death. It gives me sure. more peace. So I can. There are certainly concepts about God that have been shared with me that make that more comforting, and there are some that make it much less comforting. Oh, yeah. <laughs> how you heaven hell versus exactly. uh yes we're all gonna go you know connect to something higher but is that the you know the switch point meaning what is if you're saying helpful to you what is what is helpful what does the word helpful mean how do i know someone is i probably i probably actually meant spiritually aligned i spiritually aligned means that uh is more connected to love is more connected like from a spirituality perspective, separate from religion, 
Yes. Um, is probably what I'm speaking to. Um, is it more helpful? Is it helping me to connect to my spirituality? Is it helping me connect to others, to myself? Is it helping me to sleep well at night and not have nightmares? <laughs> uh, to not have that, that I can embrace the scary things and I'll be okay. So the spirituality is probably what I'm talking about when I say helpful. Um, so where religion is often used to um, make separate categories between people, right? Sometimes it more can strongly be. along, right? Yeah. Like I said, it's often used, but okay, it can be. Is also, I'm okay with that uh, terminology. It can be used for that. I'm so politically you, correct. <laughs> so you would consider that unhelpful? Uh, labels and categories? We're... I don't say labels and categories, but we're adopting that label and category is causing someone to feel separate from someone else, right? That, which is the opposite of spirituality, right? Often the spiritual yeah, yeah, yeah. worldview, the oneness, the connectedness, the all part of the same thing. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes a religious doctrine or religious ideas can make someone believe something very different than that spiritual concept. Yeah. So that would be an example of something you call unhelpful. It tells me that something is off. Is it the teacher? Is it the way it's being taught? Is it the receiver? It, we often blame the receiver, right? The student, mm-hmm. whatever. But where something's off, right? It, it should be truth. If it's truth and we believe it's truth, then shouldn't it align? Shouldn't it be helpful? What's well, so weird that it wouldn't be? So for me, it's like, well, let me see is there truth here? It, it hurts me so much. Um, a friend of mine, I'll quote him, Shlaimi Cohen, uh, also a psychotherapist. And he said, you know, the most painful thing is when you're learning something true, but it's being taught to you either by people that don't get the truth, they're, ta- they're teaching the falseness, or they're, or they're not getting the truth to you. You're like sitting there, like learning all this amazing stuff potentially, but pff, it ain't getting to your... It's not being taught in a truthful way. How sad. Um, it's got to have some truth. All cultures have mythologies that, that are helpful to us. So if people aren't getting it, what's wrong, right? It doesn't mean there's something wrong with the religion. There's something wrong with, with what we're doing. Right, I understood. But so take, let's say, I don't know, the Rebbe had a concept, right? Hamaisa Hoeiko, right? The action is the, the main thing, meaning there's some value in... I don't know, putting on tefillin every day, whether it brings you separateness or not separateness, like, I don't care, just do this thing. That's what it sounds like. Mm-hmm. So what do you make of that? Maya I would take it for what it's worth. The action, you know, when we do an action, whatever it is, if we're in depression and we take an action, it inspires us to do more. It impacts how we feel. But you're saying something, you're saying that Whatever. <laughs> it's possible. It's helpful, and it's like a cognitive behavioral kind of approach. Well, it could be, but let's say like that idea of a mitzvah having some sort of value independent of intention, independent of oh yeah, whether yeah. it's bringing goodness into one's life. Gotcha, yeah. Uh, obviously. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's where you're hitting a, a, yes. a, a soft spot, right? Like, now what? So should one just practice disconnected from self just do the just shake the lulav you can be thinking about whatever 
I don't know. Is it help? Is it helping them? That's what I'm saying. So how does this jive with your? I, well, well, they would argue that it, it does inspire something at a spiritual level. That there's some, I might say, the metaphor of a lulav connects to a, a an, an unconscious spiritual process for them that brings them to a, a heightened sense of spirituality. Do we know what the harvest? Why that helps somebody connect? We don't know. But our tradition tells us that certain symbols help people connect. But in fact, you may be seeing the opposite. But in fact, what? In, in fact, you may be seeing the opposite. And how they, in this random person that does this mitzvah or by? Um, I was overhearing a dialogue not long ago of two people debating of whether it would be appropriate on, let's say, a Jewish holiday or the Sabbath to have non-Jewish guests at a table. Okay. Right? So this would be an example of a practice that would create some sort of separateness for that person. Meaning there's two people in this discussion for one person that are saying, hey, if I'm practicing this Jewish holiday, then there should not be, like I shouldn't yeah. share this with, with non-Jews, right? So that's the, when I'm hearing this and, and be the same thing for you, this practice is creating a certain separateness. It's almost anti-spiritual for this person. Anti-spiritual, okay. yeah. So according to your perspective, the way I'm understanding it, it's unhelpful for this person. We may want to think why they're doing that. According to my understanding of the Rebbe's approach, the main thing is to do the thing, then just do the thing of keeping the Sabbath or the Yom Tov holidays, despite the fact that it's obviously creating a separateness mm. in this person's reality. And obviously I'm not talking about a situation where um, someone doesn't like just out there and saying, okay, let me invite non-Jews to my house. I'm talking about someone who maybe has a close friend who's a non-Jew and saying that I, it would be more meaningful to my Sabbath if they were here okay. and someone else saying, hey, how could that be? I mean, um, there's no room for that, meaning in their mind, their practice has created a separateness between them and others. That's what I mean to say. So how would, do you see your perspective, what you're sharing as being different than what the Rebbe might say about that same situation? Um, probably not, ironically. Um, I don't speak for the Rebbe, and I right. don't. Um, but I'm going to assume that if he, if if truth was there, um, then I wouldn't want to take, you know, one line of Kabbalah's all, right? That just do whatever is told to you. That sounds very toxic. But if you really understand Kabbalah's all, then you'll understand that maybe there's certain aspects to emuna or certain aspects to bitachin. Um, and, and Maisa Hua Iker is speaking about, sometimes the therapist says to the client, you just have to get out of the house. So you just need to go on a walk. We're not going to get into the deep existential crisis that you have. It's also true. So I, it, to get to the specific right. point about the, the Shabbos table, what are you picking on? You're picking on one thing that the, the Rebbe said or one thing that religion points to? Well, I'll point to the fact that Religion has many other aspects that we don't really focus on. We seem to just focus on the maisa, the doing, right. do this, be this. And it's like, come on. Like, is that really going to work for the next generation? Is that really? Not only next generation, like I'm whatever. It's like, it's just not, it's not realistic. It, people need to understand why. There needs to be a, a depth and a, a nuance to it. And yeah, so 
Okay, no, I accept yeah, your answer. Yeah. It's a good All answer. Right. <laughs> in t- t- terms of two ways, one, the Kabbalah soul way, and the second is, you know, oftentimes when someone will say, oh, it's about doing Torah mitzvahs, right? Let's say. Okay, so which mitzvah are you talking about? Is it treating someone else nicely? Or is it like, or is it the practice of wrapping straps around your hand? Like, which mitzvah are we talking about? Because like you're saying, religion touches on many, many, many different aspects. Yeah. And oftentimes... We just attach to... Right, we attach to one thing. Whatever we want. Right, we attach to this one thing. Right, Kabbalah Sol is an interesting one because Kabbalah Sol, which would mean, I guess, accepting the yoke, right, is Literally. a surrender of sorts. Like, yeah. just surrender to the surrender to it. It was often communicated, I know, to me as a child, in that I should surrender to the teacher. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> but that's not what it meant. <laughs> I hope not. That's um, not what it meant. Meaning the instruction was to surrender to God. To God, right. yeah. So it was often distorted. So you're saying it's possible, right, without the context that I may be talking, saying, oh, how am I so eager? Okay, that's one in a certain, you know, I may have said something like that too, but I did, it wasn't one of the, it wasn't the only commandment. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there wasn't we, a single commandment. It's very religious of us to yeah. be like, the Rebbe said this, and how could he say this? We're almost being religious back to him. <laughs> We're like right. saying that, you know, the Rebbe, you're <laughs> whatever. So, yeah. No, I, yeah. my my question was coming from a place of, are you saying we're in disagreement? Or are you saying, like, no, there's many, many things this person right, said, right. and let's take it. Totally. Right. Because the truth of the matter is, is that when you talk about, I, I think about this a lot, is that there's, if human life, and it says, you know, according to Judaism, which is not the same in all religions, there are certain re- religions which do not value individual like the individual human life mm-hmm. judaism seems to try to balance both the importance of the community and the importance of religion and with in individual life it says there's only three things that are three things more important than human life oh okay right? yeah. not killing someone else forbidden relations and avoid desire which yeah. right we don't know what that means yet avoid desire but that <laughs> Maybe you do. Uh, they said it it uh, says in, in, I think in Gemara somewhere that Avaidazar was transferred to money. Um, <laughs> I, so I that, that the taiva of, of the, you know, the desire for Avaidazar was put into money. Right. Yeah. Right. You also said like anger is Avaidazar, meaning the whole yeah, concept of yeah, Avaidazar is somewhat. It's somewhat to be explored. Yeah. Right. It's somewhat foreign to us, ironically. It's the unconscious. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> in any event, the. Hamaiso Iker was not one of those things that are more important than human life. That's yes. that was my point. Yeah, exactly. Human right. life, human emotional life. It doesn't always have to be literally the physical life. Right. And this, I actually, um, I once asked this question to um, a rabbi. Oh. And okay. I said, is uh, when we talk about this human life, that it's more valuable than anything else. And I think the context was something about Shabbos. And... But it may not have been. I don't want to, I'm not saying a halacha. Right. And uh, his answer was pretty definitive, is that if someone's struggling with depression or anxiety or something, like that's robbing a human of their quality of life, of their life, like that would fall under the same umbrella as human life. It doesn't literally have to be the difference between alive and dead forever. There's, you know. There their are many, life source. Yeah, or it could, yeah. you know, we'll, we'll use the analogy of, let's say someone who was, um, had a really rough child. Their childhood was robbed of them, right? They, this human did not have normal life. Or you said, uh, or uh, a term used was a developmentally un, 
inappropriate. Yeah, underdeveloped share with it. Co- correct. But no, I mean, taking something on at a time oh, of their life that yeah. they shouldn't. Okay. Right? So meaning that child didn't have a childhood. And you talk about like mm-hmm. a human life, like they were robbed of aspects of their human life. The fact that as a 30-year-old, they're still a living 30-year-old and that process in childhood didn't kill them forever, you know, kill them as a human being. It's still, they were robbed of their childhood. Yeah. And it's a term we'll use. We'll use it like they did not live a childhood. There's grief. There's loss. So for you, your, your bedrock kind of principle is... Is this supportive and helpful towards me being a better person? Towards me being a uh, yeah a healthy, happy, functional person on a deep level. <laughs> so this almost sounds like Derek Hart's cousin Latera. Maybe, <laughs> right? Maybe uh, for those who may. Maybe what Derek Hart's cousin Latera means for this generation versus then it just meant listen, Derek Hart's. Do what you're supposed to do. And now Derek Eretz means live a way of depth or live a way of introspection. It's like the words could take on new meanings. It's not that we're trying to make them new. It's just the the reality, right? Chassidus came, the Alter Rebbe came, all these generations came to explain what these things meant. And now it's it's a little bit of, we say, a, a time of darkness. We don't have an official Rebbe. We don't have an official, but we have teachers, but it seems like there's darkness um, in the time when there's the most light at the same time. So what do you mean by the light and what do you mean by the darkness? Uh, spirit, religiously, it's confusing. Um, you know, post-Gimel Thomas for Chabad right. people and, and just in general, we have a certain way that we've always been taught. Uh, Post-World War II, we kind of stayed with that kind of like religious dogma of do it this way, be it this way. And that that almost feels like darkness, like we're losing religion um, to the light, to this higher level of consciousness, uh, that we need religion to catch up to this level of consciousness that the world has, that, that our children are going to have, that we need to adapt, we need to go within, because that that is what, that's it. I mean, look, Freud, all these people came 100 years ago, we ain't going back. It's not going back. Right. I wish for the good old days. Nothing is going back. It's only going forward. And humans need to evolve and change and grow. And how do we adapt that when the religious leaders don't look like they always did? And and that's hard. The darkness is from a spirituality, religious perspective as a Jewish religious person. Like Oh, so you think that specifically within the Jewish community right now is a time of darkness? Maybe. In a sense, there isn't an obvious leader. There isn't an obvious direction. Yeah. The leaders have traditionally done the job of kind of help Clarifying, us navigate. Right? Yeah. Okay, this was appropriate in this time. Now we're in a different time, and this is how we're staying true to our ancient heritage, but still looking at the reality in front of us. Like, who's the leaders? Is it the rabbis? Are the psychologists the leaders <laughs> right. now? Like... That that's that's not our role per se. <laughs> We're here to, uh, you know, explore, and go deep. But I, I, I'm curious about that. Like, who becomes the? There, humans need leadership. Um, but is the leadership seems <laughs> stuck in World War Two? So, but but then we'd have to say that, like, this too is by design, and this is part. Like, this is 
Yeah. Okay. Right. Meaning okay. the the moment now. The Amuna or the right. The moment now is for a different type of reality, which is no leader. Mm. <laughs> yeah, a collective, a right. collective unconscious where the individual is prioritized over the mind submissive to the leader where all of the unconscious is to the leader now it's all a collective unconscious where the self is the most important thing not in an egotistical way but i could find godliness and leadership and everything within that feels that that feels right like it feels like you just said something like <laughs> okay god is within what god god no is that that may be that may be kind of the call of the hour we're almost saying that you know, f for so long, there was the opportunity to point towards a leader and somehow know that they were providing the right direction for us. And while there was a place for that, that's not the place now. That's not. That's and if we don't channel. have it in absence of that, where do we find it? And the only way we can be sure is within. The Rebbe said, I'm giving it over to you. I do believe the Rebbe, you know, he was that transmission of, of whatever this next level of consciousness was. And, and he says, I'm not going to speak for the Rebbe, but he says, I'm giving it over to you, to the Hasidim. And that sounds very religious. Um, but like from like a more broad perspective, it's, it's you guys. You can't just, we can't just look towards a leader. I like what you're saying. I, yeah. I'm agreeing with it as we're and it's, talking. It's, it's not only happening within Chabad, right? If we look at... Yeah, yeah. Let's say politically, right? Regardless of which side one is on, I think we both would agree, and most people would agree, that the level of power and dignity and respect that the office of the president of the United States once held, it does not have that. You're saying just naturally, like it as the level in society where we're at, yeah. Yeah, it's like it's, we do not have a leader in the sense, not calling into question them specifically, what I'm saying is, is that that concept, almost as a leader of the country, just does not exist. Even if someone who was the most amazing leader were to step forward, like had all the best leadership qualities of any president in the history of the United States, that title, the president of the United States, doesn't carry the gravitas that it did even 10, and certainly not 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, meaning that this vacuum of leadership so to speak, where we don't have that same um, idealism, yes, adoration yeah. for the leader. Even if we didn't agree, we would say, hey, but he is the leader and we have to, right, if you don't respect him, respect the office, like that just doesn't seem to, to, to have that today. So if we're seeing this in many different ways and we believe that the world is, you know, kind of carefully constructed and orchestrated, if that yeah. is our believe then this is the call of the hour is i guess to go to go within and find that space yeah we like, always seek outwards we're seeking maybe a lack of self-love i don't know anything we're seeking towards a collective but now it's like we can find that within a certain sense of real self-love a real sense of real unity um within ourselves right because even it's clear even in talking to you that in, in trying to find that place of whether you're doing right or wrong, there's no one you're pointing to. Right? You're pointing within. 
the unconscious power, you know, the, yes. within, yeah. Yes. The, but the godly spirit, whatever you want to Meaning the, the way you're going to find that answer is not by knocking on someone else's door. It's not by through going, a therapist. What? <laughs> not that it's not through a therapist, but the therapist isn't going to give you the right or wrong. Right. But I'm saying in yeah. your case. Yeah. In your case, you're not saying is... Jung sounds to me, when you said his name, that you held a tremendous amount of respect for him. The Rebbe, when you said his name, it sounds like you hold a tremendous amount of respect for him. But there's no door for you to knock on and say, please give me the direction for my life that you're going to have to find within. And is this helpful for you in your own spiritual development or not? That's the question. And only you can answer that. Only you can answer that. You can find it in the teachings. You can find it within other, you know. You get a lot of help. Yeah, mentorship, teachings, the Rebbe's teachings, Young's teachings, all these things that we can take and, and integrate. And, but the final yeah. answer for you is how it feels in the belly. For me, I, I feel different spots in my stomach. Right. I can actually feel um, different parts come up Yeah, with people right. and stuff. And if it's clear... Then we're good. Then you know you're good. Then we're good. Right, so the meaning that that's a, just another way of saying the same thing. So maybe that's, the, that's what needs to happen now. There is no leader... No one's coming to save us. Like we, each of us, it's been handed to us. Each of us need to find that power source within. That sits right. I'm sure that won't sit right with somebody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But that's a really interesting take. Right. And yeah, I think that. Yeah, I haven't expressed this before. It's, yeah. We're having a yeah. conversation and there happens to be a microphone in front of us. Exactly. It's not. Um, this wasn't a, a thought I had or expressed, but as I'm asking you questions and talking about these things is maybe this is it maybe this is uh this is what it's been waiting for and you kind of you know i was sitting with a guest earlier today and you know he had mentioned about the rabbis and the rabbis and the rabbis not in that way but kind of it felt like there was a certain expectation he had of the rabbis doing more for the community mm -hmm. and i didn't feel it appropriate to challenge him in, in the moment so i let it go but what i was thinking was Come on. The rabbis, like, what power do they have? What could they do? It's actually every single one of us has as much power as the next. That's there what is, we, we, yeah. we're teaching yeah, our there children. Is, yeah, there is no one who's... It's. I've spoken to many, many rabbis. They say, I'd love to do this. I don't have the power. No one listens to me when I talk. My wife and kids don't listen. <laughs> the no. power is gone anyway. <laughs> right. You might, like, stop with the fake powers and control and agendas. Just, like... Give it up. Right. It doesn't exist. Heal. And it probably did at a time, right? There was a time. Jung speaks about Nazi Germany. The what? He studied Hitler. He met Hitler. And he studied Nazi Germany. And he spoke about this collective group of people transferring their unconscious to Hitler. That he was like a walking country. He wasn't a human. Um, so like this idea of like the idea of a leadership like a leader literally takes on the unconscious of others um but to the to the lack of the the, the people and this is more of a sound like a trippy concept but the idea that we that we are our own people now i love that like that we're we're not necessarily followers we we're we're, we're our own leaders i love that idea and that that can save us from repeating history from from uh group think from all these ideas where humans do you know, crazy things. Right. Maybe this will actually help us not to do that. I, I would think so. I mean, the, the last hundred years are littered with examples of 
people who've been able to step into that role, much to the dismay of many of the other ones. From those in power? Correct. Meaning this mistake of giving our power away to the wrong person has proven to be... It's complicated. You're getting into into systems, you're getting into uh, organizations, school systems. It's a whole... Like who's in charge? Someone needs to be in charge. Are you gonna... So it's it's still like a spiritual concept, and how are you going to integrate it into our life? Uh, it starts with the individual. It starts with those in power doing their own work, their own healing, and that's where we can start with the individual. Um, we always say we have right. to start with the community. We need to heal the community. What's the expression? I don't remember. Is it some the Rabbi of Kotsk or something like? It? Yeah. First, I tried to heal the world, and then I tried to heal my country, and then I tried to heal my community. If there was family. one person that could actually, <laughs> like that wisdom would transmit, and I, I somehow I believe that, like as much as my work is called towards like communal stuff, and I've been in schools, but like if I ever lost that one-on-one individual work, it would be a hard one to like stop practicing you know one-on-one let's say maybe it would be by one-on-one do you mean you with yourself or you that's what i was just thinking (laughs) no it's great as we're talking that perhaps perhaps i I can let that go you can't what (laughs) i can let that go right the one-on-one is yeah because it's really with myself yeah who is it who said um you have it side off i interviewed not long ago you published not long Mm -hmm. ago she said I've created the perfect storm of problems in order to get the perfect teaching for myself. Like some, you know. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. 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 So it's like all of this kind of outside reality that we create <laughs> just in order to learn like, yeah, just, just the right lesson. Yeah, we do all sorts of stuff just to like tell ourselves, you know, teach ourselves one little message. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, this, you know, humans do crazy things to just grapple with, with what they haven't um, connected to. Right. But it's a lot of that also being, you know, deeply unconscious, not understanding that we're doing that, but thinking. Unconscious means that we have no idea that we feel or believe that. That's what unconscious means. It's a really important concept. I could yell it into the microphone. There's this idea that there's unconscious. That means thoughts, beliefs, patterns that you have no connection to until you do some internal work. And then they're not unconscious anymore. And then they're no longer unconscious. And you might have a a core belief that shocks you. And you might always feel like, yeah, you know, I don't really have good self-esteem or something. But you may never know that you have like some... Uh, crazy that crazy but really intense belief that like I'm going to be hurt right or when I'm in a certain and that that causes me to do x or all sorts of like weird stuff that the unconscious does in our body right I encountered one recently I think I should live it on the podcast which I could not believe I held and was probably the single biggest impediment to my marriage and since I've spoken about this and shifted this it's uh, my marriage is completely completely different than i wow. know my wife for 10 years and it was that if i'm hurt twice in the same way i am a fool that's it that's simple oh it's very specific right yeah but it's just it's uniquely you yeah if i'm hurt twice in the same way i'm a fool and now it's if i'm hurt twice in the same way i'm in love i'm in love <laughs> i'm in love that's beautiful yeah it's beautiful Right. Meaning, and that's something that I can stand to, to the whole world. Like it's okay to get hurt, and that was something that 
Like that was a belief. It's not okay to get hurt. Almost like I won't survive getting hurt. Yeah, I won't survive. I won't survive getting hurt. Yeah. Like if I want to take it to a deeper level. And then the other stuff around being a fool and, you know, kind of how I've... Yeah, like at that core, like I won't survive. If I feel the grief, I will die. That's the feeling, yeah. The, for grief, like avoidance yeah. of grief or if I, like I will, it's really intense at the core. And it's like, really? <laughs> um, but it's right. okay. So Embrace I mean, this... it, love it, and feel it. And do it in a safe way. <laughs> right. So this case, this idea, I had no idea I believed this. I could not have articulated it. As soon as it was shown to me, I felt like I was kicked in the head. And oh, it's like, yeah. The, yeah. Like that, that. that happened. But it was too. true. Yeah. I was like, wow, that's, that is literally the way I'm, I'm living. But it was driving so many of my, my interactions. And then just bringing it from the unconscious to the conscious. That's what you're, yeah. you're talking about. Yeah. And there's many ways to do that. And therapy is one way. I know you're right. speaking about plant medicine and all sorts of... Okay, you went there first, so... Just because you liked it. I saw that you <laughs> talked about it. I, I, you know, I talk about what's going on in my life and yeah. the tools that I've... Yeah. Uh, that one is getting a little bit of a attention now. Yeah. You know, because there's some confusion or, you know, sexual abuse used to get a lot of the same kind of... Yeah, yeah, I'm, it's I'm new. Talking, right. It's new, it's scary, and it touches on the unconscious. Yes. Any new therapy always freaks people out. Any new... Yeah, uh, healing modality is going to freak people out. Right. I'm not talking about anything more than like my experience, my life, my story, and so tools that may may or may not be impacting um, that are no, impacting myself. Yeah. And there are certain ones that kind of get you know, like I did these two. I did a a, a three part conversation with Yy Jacobson. We've only had Yy. We've only held two of them so far. Okay. And the two areas that got the most kind of, you know, we spoke on many different subjects, but there were two, it's like, you're talking about that, was psychedelics and homosexuality. Those were two that oh, just yeah. kind of, you know, it was like I we touched, why. A, touched an electric, um, electric fence. So you mentioned plant medicines. Do you have a thought on it, perspective, questions, answers? My wife would just like that I, that I talked about it. She's, she recently did a plant uh -huh. medicine and loved it. And... <laughs> I'm a believer. You're a believer. Um, I haven't personally done plant medicine. I do things in the way that I do them. I like to like learn about things a lot and go in the linear and then eventually have to just jump off the cliff. Right. <laughs> um, and so uh, it's, my, it's my next thing. You know, if I have the right opportunity, I'm open to it. I'm curious. What, isn't that the point of like what I do? Like we're supposed to be curious and explorative and not stuck in some one thing. So yeah, if it's helping people and yeah, this, yeah, and uh, this therapists are all a lot of people are about it. So yeah, I think it was Terrence McKenna or Dennis McKenna said, like that was his. You know, people would he he was obviously one of the big proponents of it early on. Yeah, um, Terrence McKenna, I think it was who said this, okay. and um, you know when there was um, it was uh, there were not many people who were supportive of it. He was one of the first on the forefront. Of this, he made famous the uh, heroic dose of psilocybin mushrooms, where okay. he's like every single person should take you know five grams psilocybin mushrooms inside, um, like in a dark room, no, just you, yeah. just you with the mushrooms, and no music, no lights, no nothing, just you alone with your thoughts. On that he called the heroic dose. Anyway, yeah. so he would tell people like instead of debating it, just do it, you know, take a fifteen minute. DMT experience and see what happens. And then we'll talk. Like, and you'll tell me what you think. Like, why, why does there have to be so much resistance? Obviously, I'm not suggesting anything that 
flipping right. because there are many. Well, there's parts. My parts say, yo, that's dangerous. Yo, that right. <laughs> our parts come up and that they don't want to do that. Right. And, and <laughs> I wouldn't, I'm certainly not that flippant with it. I yeah. think it's like we're going in with the power tools for sure. Yes. And going one of, all in. Yeah. I feel that with, with trauma work. We're going in. Are going, you, just yeah. make sure it's a safe space and, and that right. the people have. Yeah. yeah. And for me also, it's, it's new, like relatively new, about four years on this, this path yes. yeah. with, uh, with plant medicines, which by some may be considered a, a long time because a lot of people are getting to it recently, but it's certainly new for something this massive. Yes, you know, it's new. To say how, right, it's very new. But it's since the beginning of time, you know, like right. anything. No, around. I'm saying for me, for me, like my oh, yeah, interactions yeah. with it, it's about four years. And um, where was I going with that thought? And I, like I'm evolving in my, my thought, you know, thoughts of it. I'm seeing people who go into it, how it affects them, which ones have a positive effect, which ones don't. And one thing I've certainly come to is that someone who's choosing to go on this path should know that it's coming from themselves like that any sort of peer pressure or anything is extremely unhelpful for it because at some point in time during that it's highly likely it may not be the first experience it may be the 10th but at some point in time someone is most likely to come face to face with something super 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 intense and difficult mm -hmm. and the question is going to be why am i here why am i here like, why did I subject myself to this experience? And I interviewed um, Dr. Matthew Johnson, who's uh, okay. head of um, psychedelics and consciousness at John Hopkins University. Cool. And he did a lot of the studies around psilocybin that are becoming famous now. He led a lot of those studies. And a lot of them were done with soldiers suffering from PTSD. So he said, something I tell every single person who's coming into a psilocybin mushroom journey. He said, I say it, and it's still not understood by them when I say it for some reason, but I say it anyway. He said, is that I've treated soldiers who've been in Afghanistan, who've lost friends, who've been through horrible parts of war, and they've done psilocybin mushrooms, and they've said that the most intense experience of their life is no longer what happened in Afghanistan. It's psilocybin mushrooms. So at some point in time, someone is likely to come face-to-face -face with that kind of reality under the experience. And if the reason is because my wife pressured me into it, <laughs> they're going to hate their wife in that moment. Right, right. But if the reason is that I decided I want to do something to be a better dad. I want to end generational trauma. I want to, even if I'm really freaking curious about what this thing is, but I am really curious about it, then that's why I'm here. Cool. I like that. So that's, that's certainly one thing that, so I'll the reason I that. said that is because when I spoke about um, Terrence McKenna and just saying, hey, everyone should do this, just try 15 minutes and uh, see what happens. Easy. I've seen it open things up for people that, they got to be ready to deal with. Yeah. You know, just like anything, once you go in, there's no turning back. Exactly. You can't unsee um, something. You can't unsee something. You can't unsee something. It's a very, <laughs> it's a very difficult, uh, it's a, that's a very difficult thing. But okay. That's, uh, that's nice that you have a positive, um, reference point. Yeah. Yeah. For it. I'm, I'm open. I, it's probably the future. Yeah. Uh, done in a probably a controlled. There'll be more yeah. evidence and how to do it in the safest way and all those things. But I'm assuming that that's the next uh, next thing, right? You know. And I was talking to someone who said um, that you know when there's more evidence for it and everything else, then you know they'll come on board and they want research. I said, okay, I'm comfortable being part of the research class. 
Yeah. Right. Like what I've seen so far, <laughs> meaning someone has to do that. There's Someone's no got to be the research exactly. participant. Okay. Exactly. So I'm comfortable being part of. I don't. <laughs> I don't know if I'm a big research participant, but uh, but I, I'm also open to not. Not everything that that can be tracked is is going to be helpful. There's things that can't be tracked. Okay. Yes. There's certain things that can't be proven. Okay. Certain things around spirituality, all these things that can't be evidence based. Um, you know, we do whatever we can to help us feel safe. And I, I'm all about evidence base and all that. 100%. Yeah. And we can't no, quantify and, and scientify. You know, no, hopefully everything. over time they get that answer, you know, more and more. I wonder about it, which is something I just shared now, which is, okay, are there, am I seeing some patterns mm-hmm. in the people who seem to have very good positive outcomes from these experiences and those that don't? I want to say I don't. I don't know that I have anyone off the top that had a horribly like a negative certain, experience. Uh, personality traits or tendencies, or yeah. yeah, or this one I mentioned is certainly one of them. Yeah, yeah. Going yeah. intention, in, go, going in for your own reasons and not for any of the the peer pressure associated with it. Yeah. But there's no question: is feeling safe when you're in that space is paramount. So whatever it takes for someone to get there. Whether, you know, if it's the research and the evidence mm-hmm. and a clinician and someone with four letters after their name, like mm-hmm. if that's what it takes in order for you to feel safe, truly safe, the more safe you feel, the deeper you can go, the deeper you can go, the yeah. more. But I'll tell you one thing that um, was neat from my conversation with Matthew Johnson is he mentioned that, so they've, they've done their best to measure mystical experience, which doesn't always happen on psychedelics, but it sometimes does, mm-hmm. often does. And... He said, so on this, however they graded it, did you interact with, a, you know, an unknown spirit or, you know, did you touch, did you feel like you were experiencing something that felt divine or however they asked the questions, but some sort of measure of it. When they quantified it, the more mystical experience, the more long-term beneficial, right? So they were coming in dealing with PTSD or depression yeah. or anxiety. And the more mystical, the more long-term beneficial. Totally. Very, very interesting correlation. I think so, right? Anything, I think anything that has an impact on our soul is going to last. If I can make somebody feel something, right? That's going to that very, very deep level, right? That, uh, yeah, right. Yes, that that soul, that soul connection. You feel it in all sorts of weird ways. Anything that helps us tap deeper. I said I found it in hypnosis. Like I don't practice hypnosis as a clinician, um, but I. I was trained in it and just letting go of my things within that process of being hypnotized. Right. Um, is <laughs> is almost similar to that. Um, there's that yeah. surrender must be, uh, it's more, yeah, it's more like that. It's not like the medicine just says, go, <laughs> you know, you're going with the medicine, but this well, is you a can, sur- you, many people do resist. Yeah. So I could see that. Yeah, yeah. So for me first, it took me the whole training to let go of the resistance and be open to the healing. Um, and that's, it feels like that with every, <laughs> yes. with every, every deep work, um, some more than others, but yeah. Yeah. Um, let, I'd, I'd like to kind of touch on one more thing and then maybe sure. wrap up the conversation. So you, it seemed to, you, you seem to be making a, dis, not a distinction, but pointing out a divide between where religion kind of currently is and what's happening with kind of spiritual enlightenment um, in this moment and suggesting that maybe religion has to shift in some way and come into the 
the, the light. Is that what you were, was I understanding it correctly? Yeah, and maybe I would even use consciousness as a better word than spirituality, but like similar, that consciousness is evolving, so religion has to match the level of consciousness. Um, you may use the word spirituality, yes. I'm using. Okay, so consciousness is evolving, your evidence for that is what? Uh, just the insight that people seem to, to have with each generation. Um, the younger kids have consciousness, they're just more intelligent, more emotionally mature, and more emotionally intelligent. They see things as they are. They're evolving as humans into deeper levels. So consciousness is awareness. Doesn't the Gemara say something, the Talmud says something, that in the, like in the times before Messiah, the, the children will teach the parents or something to this effect? I don't know, but if it does, that makes sense because <laughs> that's where we're at. I mean, is, is this... Is this different? It feels different, right? Meaning it in... This is a very, I think this is a very unique time in history. Right. It does feel like there's, there's a quality of children pulling their parents in a direction, maybe one for generations. I don't know. I wasn't there on the conscious way, where parents were direct, kind of, here's the parents, here's their home, and then the kids stayed there, and then the grandkids stayed there, and... You know, until the parents died, they were kind of the patriarch and matriarch of the family. And now yeah. I wonder it if seems I would, maybe to go yeah. in the reverse. Children go, move to a new place, drag the parents to come with them. Oh, that's for sure. And I might add that parents are open to learning from their children. Mm. That's more. I'm not saying parents didn't do that in the past. and that's But the learning within self, we're, learning, we're going deeper. If we go deep enough, maybe we'll catch our children's level of depth right? if we're lucky. Yeah, some of what I was thinking about when I was saying that is me. Yeah, is that. No, is me as parent. Uh, okay. Not only me as child, right? Me as gotcha. parent and seeing the way that, you know, and certainly psychedelics has helped a lot with that, is seeing the way that there's this underlying message that every single one of my children are communicating to me and could i be open enough to receive that and when i do okay now we're on to the next lesson the next lesson <laughs> the lessons yeah. keep coming and yeah um what we know to be truth is not it won't be the truth for the next generation um, right. and as long as we're okay with that and that what we're speaking about is one level of consciousness today and that in you know 30 years we'll have a deeper level of of awareness and understanding if we're okay with that and we can like settle with that then i think we'll right. be okay are you familiar with the work of david hawkins sounds very familiar you wrote um well the book i'm reading recently is power versus force okay but he's um he developed something called the map of consciousness hmm. so he the way he kind of grades it and i'm just getting familiar yeah. with his work now sure um it was actually very recently it was on a podcast i was interviewed by um Gedalia fenster and he mentioned yeah. the name david hawkins i'm like that's like the third time i'm hearing this guy's name in the past yeah it's week. always like that yeah you're like gotta uh, yeah let gotta. me let me start reading his work so i'm certainly a novice i'm halfway through his first book that i'm reading i've watched a little bit of his talks online but he developed something called the map of consciousness okay where he claims to have measured different emotions and graded them on a scale of zero to a thousand let's say let's say emotions let's call it states of beings okay measure them a scale of zero to a thousand and in this scale like quantified them somehow scientifically quantified what is the energetic pull of this but then most importantly is he 
So the lowest part of the scale are those which are non-life-affirming states of beings. And the highest are the most life-affirming states of, of beings. So actually, as he goes through this, the reason you get comfortable with it is because when he says things like, oh, that makes sense. That makes sense. Like it's not, when I say the most life-affirming um, state, you may not, you'll probably, you may, you may even think of it, but as soon as I say, like we all know that shame has like the lowest life-affirming okay. state being of any yeah. state that exists, right? One, before suicide, someone's in that state of intense shame gotcha. very often. And right above that is guilt. But then as you kind of go up the scale, you have something like fear or even pride, which she considers non-life-affirming states, but they're more life-affirming than things like shame or otherwise. Interesting. And then it kind of goes all the way up the scale until pure enlightenment, and, you know, pure enlightenment, which is the highest um, which is the highest state, which is kind of eternal life. Yeah, where we're all headed towards of some sort. I think at that state, there is a sense of, he actually doesn't describe it too much because there aren't too many words, but... It's no labels. But yeah, I, I, I think one way... Ultimate A, a spiritual teacher who, I've, who I follow uses a term regularly called eternal life. Like we arrive at a state where there's a recognition of eternal life. Oh, okay. Very nice. Right? So if we talk about, like pure enlightenment is eternal life. Where mm -hmm. it says we, we are created, this is a, a, a step in the process, something that will exist afterwards, something that will exist before. There isn't time, there isn't space, there's eternal life. Okay, these are words, but that... If we can connect to those words. That's the most life-affirming, that's the highest life-affirming state that I understood from, from David Hawkins, using some of my words Interesting. for okay. his stuff. But the point, like what was so helpful for me is seeing how these different states are, um, like there's a ladder of sorts. And it can feel so good when we move, let's say from his baseline, you know what his baseline is for like just coming into life affirming is yeah. courage. Oh, okay. Like being in a state of courage, but yeah. things like pride are are below, and then right. from there, love, peace. I don't remember the exact order, but you know, letting go, love, of peace, joy, right. acceptance. Yeah, acceptance. Yeah. Okay. So all in, all in, all. I think acceptance, like one step above courage. Not so much the point, but as much as there is this ladder, and sometimes when we're ascending the ladder, we can feel like we're at the top and everyone is below, and there's like no, there's something above, and there's something. So when you're talking about the children, it made me think of his work. Like yeah, the like, like, like hold yourself with a little humility yeah, right. and just, you know, your kids will teach you something. And if you're open to that, then, right. there's then like, all will. It's an ascension. All will work itself out. In some out. way that can keep going. And even within spiritual enlightenment, he has different, uh, like, very interesting. different levels. Very interesting. Yeah, it's very interesting for me to quantify these things and also to see what's most powerful to see how a negative state could be more life-affirming than a more negative state and how it could be totally helpful to someone to get them into a negative state, which is something that I, I've always known. Like in recovery, most people come in numb and oh. they're in a state of intense shame yeah. and numbness. That's it's like they get into intense shame, can't deal with it, so go into numb. And they keep vacillating or we keep vacillating. I, that's in a, a, you walk into a recovery, early recovery meeting, this is what you're finding. Intense shame followed by a state of numbness. And somehow, if we can get beyond that, then we start stepping into these states of fear and anger, which 
seem so negative, but are actually much more life-affirming according to the scale than things like numbness and shame. And when we, so for me, like standing on the outside of that, I've always known like when I can get a sponsee really angry, like now I've like, you were saying that too. And then, right. yeah, and if I can get them even to feel pain, to feel sadness, to feel loss. Grief. Some of those grief, things. then they could feel joy, right? The opposite, you know, sadness. Yeah. If we feel true sadness, we could feel true joy. If we feel true grief, we could feel true love. So these are two opposites that come together. Everything in life comes together in opposites. So, and so the, I guess that rule of thumb that if, if I can help somebody feel sadness, then I also know that they can access joy or true joy, then they right. will also feel deep sadness. Um, so, right. Meaning it goes, it, yeah. it goes together. Yeah. Yeah. Good. So how do we put a bow on this whole conversation? We went in many different places. Yeah. We started with family therapy. Well, yeah, I think that, that pulled you in. <laughs> Um, <laughs> or, or me in. And I think that it, it's all like, like all these conversations, it's a conversation of healing. Um, it's a conversation of humility, uh, a sense of that there might be more out there that I don't know. And that's beautiful. Teach me. And when you teach me and I don't want to change, right. <laughs> I'll open my heart and try to change anyway. <laughs> I'll try to be open to whatever can be taught um, and how that ties in and yeah, how we look at spirituality, religion maybe comes from that. Right. I uh, certainly think that was one part of the, from like watching the conversation, that was one part that there weren't, there were much more questions and answers through the course <laughs> of this conversation. Isn't that, yeah. Yeah, which is neat. I okay. like that. Is we're not, like part of the reason I speak is because I find that there are kind of two lies that are told when someone um, speaks only if he knows the answer. One is the lie that only someone who has the answer can speak. And the other is that the one who's speaking knows the answer. Mm. <laughs> so <laughs> I think that having more of that um, having more of that approach will do more good that, than bad. And I, maybe this kind of ties into the, the leadership thing when we shouldn't be so surprised when we find out the emperor has no clothes. This happens so many times yeah. that people we've held in a position of leadership or a position of yeah. respect has proven to be not not worthy of that. So no one has to be surprised. It's like not, Yeah, we don't, it's not only the perfect who get to, to speak. It's not only those who think they have an answer or can put, speak in a way that they pretend they know just the exact way to sum this point up. And yeah, trying to over-quantify, over-label. That's, that's this generation. What? Next generation, they're not going to like labels. <laughs> so everything we're doing now, they're going to hate it. L'chaim. <laughs> uh, I already do. So. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Ellie, thank you for... For having me thank you for coming really, on really appreciate it i'm grateful yeah. for uh you sharing the space with me and uh for having this conversation thank you we might even put it out to uh we might even post it one day and publish it and other people get the benefit of it okay uh, okay <laughs> i like that